Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. I remember one time several years ago, my husband and I were getting ready to go out somewhere fancy. So I took a shower, I shaved my legs and underarms, I dried off with a towel, I moisturized with one lotion for my body and one lotion for my face. I blow dried my recently color treated hair to make it straight. It naturally dries in small curls. And then I used a curling wand to make my hair have big curls instead of small curls. Then I put on a bra to lift my boobs higher than they naturally are. I put on Spanx to suck in my torso to look smaller than it actually is. And then I put on a dress and then I put on high heels to make me look taller than I am. Then on my face, I did a little concealer to make my skin look a more consistent color than it really is. And then I put on eyeshadow and eyeliner to alter the appearance of my eyelids and then mascara to make my eyelashes look longer and thicker and black when they're really just brown. And then I did eyebrow gel to darken my eyebrows, but first I tweezed them to be a slightly different shape than they really are. And then I did some bronzer to make me look like I was blushing when I wasn't, and then some lip gloss to make my lips look shinier than they are naturally. And then, of course, I put on a little jewelry for some added sparkle. So in the meantime, next to me, my husband took a shower, dried off, put on his suit, put on his flat shoes... And okay, he did put lotion on his face and hands, and he put in one dab of one hair product into his hair, and he was ready to go. And I compared my getting ready process with his, and I thought, wow, I just altered almost every aspect of my body in order to measure up to society's beauty standards for women. And I spent a lot of time and a lot of thought and a lot of money on each and every one of those products that enabled me to meet those standards. Next to me, my husband altered nothing about his physical appearance. He spent no extra money and absolutely no extra thought. And I thought, wow, I have been sold something here. Today's book is called The Beauty Myth written by Naomi Wolf in 1991. And I am super excited to discuss this book, and I'm super excited to discuss it with my reading partner today, Vanessa Loader. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. (laughs) I'm just so thrilled to be here supporting you and this podcast. I have been trying to unwind all the ways that I've internalized patriarchy for the last decade, and the layers of that onion just keep peeling back and going deeper than I ever realized. So I'm I'm really, really excited to be here, to be part of this, and to be having this conversation with you. Me too. Thanks. And you and me both with that patriarchy onion, it just keeps, the layers just keep going, don't they? So Vanessa and I met in 2005. Um, My husband, Eric, and Vanessa were assigned as table partners during their MBA at Stanford. And Vanessa, I remember when I met you the very first time you were then and you still are like a 20,000 watt light bulb, just like so bright and glowing and whip smart and hilarious and so accomplished in education and career. And even back then before business school, you were already just like so dynamic and so accomplished and drop dead gorgeous, by the way. And but then just so approachable and kind, and it's just impossible not to love you. I'm so grateful for your friendship, and it's been so meaningful to me after business school, just in the past few years at reunions and weddings and retreats that that you and I have just become friends separately from Eric, and we've actually had some really 
powerful and beautiful conversations that I'll remember forever, Vanessa. You're just so dear to me. So I'm super grateful that you're my friend and that you're here to talk about this book. Oh my gosh, that just makes my heart so happy. Thank you. You just, oh, <laughs> so nice, everything you just said. And I feel the same way. And, I, and I've and i also loved the deepening of our friendship and, and how we've had these conversations even before you started this podcast about mm-hmm. patriarchy and what it means to be a powerful woman today and, and how we come at it from such different backgrounds and yet mm-hmm. have such common pain points. Mm-hmm. So I'm oh, just so thrilled to be here. Yes, I love that you point out that we are like we it's so interesting we've talked about this before how we're arriving in this similar space but from completely different places. It's like we're meeting in the forest but we're approaching <laughs> each other from opposite paths, right? But meeting totally. in this, this same space which has been really like enriching in our conversations, I feel like. Um okay, so can you start us off by telling us a bit about yourself, just who you are, where you're from, and what makes you who you are? Yes, and why I came from a totally different village when I entered the woods than you yeah, did. Yeah, um, Sure, happy to. So I have been, you know, kind of an overachiever my entire life. And when I was a little girl, my sister joked in the wedding speech she gave when my husband and I got married that my favorite line was, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> so I would say that a lot when I was little. And But when I look back, I mean, I was a tomboy. Um, And I remember at recess even really wanting to play kickball, but also having this sense that that was sort of, quote unquote, more important or more valuable than the girls who were just like skipping around and trying to look cute. And so I had this real strong reaction. I feel like I, I sort of could sense that men had power and I wanted it from a very young age, even though I couldn't have articulated it at the time. Uh, And I was always, you know, yeah, into sports and um, quite an overachiever. So I graduated from, you know, an Ivy League school, top of my class while playing Division One varsity soccer because it wasn't good enough to be smart or athletic. I had to do both. And then when I graduated, I thought about joining the Peace Corps, which I think in hindsight was my soul calling to me. But I chose to take a job on Wall Street doing investment banking instead. And so I would work these, you know, 100 plus hour weeks just working around the clock. And when I finally got out of work, I would feel so drained and exhausted. I would either go drink a little too much wine with my girlfriends or zone out in front of really bad TV. And that kind of work hard, play hard mentality went on for many years. I went to take a job in private equity doing these billion dollar leverage buyouts and then came out to Stanford to get my MBA. Thought about doing something entrepreneurial when I graduated, but I basically chickened out. And at the time I told myself, oh, I have a lot of student loans, or actually not even a lot because I had earned some money from finance, just a little. But I thought, oh, it'd be more responsible to take a job to pay off these loans and then do something I really want to do. But in hindsight, it was honestly a fear, fear of failure and fear of not not really knowing myself and not really knowing what I really wanted to do with my life that caused me to keep kind of climbing this ladder. And I essentially got to this point in my career where I was making plenty of money sitting on the board of a company I loved. Um, Everything in my life on the outside looked great. And yet inside, I just felt this emptiness, this lack of fulfillment. And I would lie in bed at night with my mind kind of racing, thinking of all the things I didn't get done that day or all the things I had to get done the next day. And for me, my big initial epiphany came from the fact that I thought, huh, I've climbed all these rungs of this ladder, go to a good school, get good grades, get a good job, get a promotion, get into a good grad school. And it's like I got to the top of the ladder and... I didn't have the happiness and the fulfillment that I assumed success would bring me. So I started to wonder, 
if maybe the entire playbook was flawed and I'd been kind of climbing this ladder that was set out by other people, um, predominantly men. And so that led me to <laughs> a bit of a breakdown. Actually, I, what I did was what any good overachiever will do is I did a lot of research and started tapping into my <laughs> network. Um, I started learning about mindfulness and the neuroscience behind behavior change, studied with all kinds of uh, and it got hired an executive coach, studied with different neuroscientists and spiritual teachers. I went on five and 10 day silent meditation retreats. Basically, my overachiever went nuts in the personal <laughs> development space for many years. And my husband was like, are you just going to be some sort of a self-help junkie? Like what's going on here? But I ended up changing so dramatically that I realized what I most wanted to do was bring these tools to other people and particularly to women and particularly to women in the business world. And so that's what I did. I quit my job in finance. Over 10 years ago, I started my own business running leadership development programs and private uh, group coaching programs and retreats for women. And then I also do you know, keynote sp speaking and I just wrote a book. So mm -hmm. um, it's been quite a journey. And I think for me, in terms of patriarchy, part of my journey has been realizing how I put on so many um, facades to act more masculine than I really am in order to fit in, in order to succeed in these male-dominated environments. And what I've been working on in myself and with my clients for the last decade is how do I reclaim my, my feminine power, my authentic feminine power? What does that look like? And how do I create success in the world that feels more sustainable and more authentic, where there's a whole new paradigm of how I live and work and breathe and move in the world that isn't dictated by, you know, the current constructs. Amazing. Okay. Will you quickly tell <laughs> listeners about this incredible work you're doing? You could talk about your book and your company, and then I want to hear a little bit more about patriarchy, but first tell us <laughs> yeah. about all your awesome projects that you have going. Oh my gosh. You're so sweet to even ask. It's true. Uh, well, you can, let's see, I've done a TEDx talk, um, gosh, almost eight or nine years ago now. So you can see that online. I think if you search for my name, it's called How to Lean In Without Burning Out. I am writing a book right now. I just handed in the draft manuscript. So by the time the, whoop, whoop, by the time <laughs> this goes live, maybe it should be published in October of 2022. And it's called The Soul Switch, A Guide for Brilliant, Overwhelmed Women to Quiet the Noise, Find Their Superpower, and Finally Feel Satisfied. Oh, so and, exciting. Yes. And I'll read you, actually, just because it's popping up right now in my awareness, the quote that I opened the introduction for the book with that really resonated with me, which is, she has achieved everything she set out to do, but it has come at great sacrifice to her soul. Her relationship with her inner world is estranged. She feels oppressed, but doesn't understand the source of her victimization. And that's by a woman named Maureen Murdoch in a book she wrote called The Heroine's Journey. And I also have, oh, it's just one other thing. If people are interested in sort of a quick and easy way to get some resources, there's, there's a free 30-day meditation challenge on my website. It's just five minutes a day. So it's really great for beginners or people who are kind of tight on time and don't feel like they're going to go, you know, on a three-day silent meditation retreat. Um, so if you go to vanessaloader.com forward slash 3030 hyphen or dash day, D-A-Y, you can join that. It's free. You just get a, an email every day for 30 days with a short guided meditation. Fabulous. Everything you produce is amazing. I've And I feel super lucky. I have watched your amazing TED Talk. And I and 
checked out your website. It's incredible. And I feel so honored to have gotten a sneak peek at your book. And I will be buying it as soon as it comes out. I'm super excited for it, Vanessa. So, Oh my gosh. Thank you. Well, thank you. Amy was an early reader and gave me such insightful feedback and comments. So ah, right back at you, sister. Oh, great. <laughs> okay. So tell us a little bit more about your journey with patriarchy really quick before we dive into this book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the story I'll share about that is when I did one of my very first meditation retreats, I was too scared to do like an overnight. So I just did a day long at Spirit Rock, which is this wonderful place in Marin in Northern California. And I did a day long women's retreat. And so we sat, you know, basically from 9am to 4pm in these 20 minute increments with breaks and with short talks from the teachers. And there was this moment in the afternoon at like 1 or 2pm where I did this thing that I think a lot of beginning meditators do where I I opened my eyes and like peeked around the room and was like, is everybody really still doing this? Like this has been <laughs> so long. Uh, and I kind of glanced around and I saw they, you know, all these women, like a hundred women with their eyes closed. And there were three teachers up on the dais. And I still remember this one with like um, white hair, like gray hair with this beautiful like white streak in her hair. And she just looked so regal and grounded and powerful up there sitting in this stillness. And I closed my eyes to drop back into some form of quiet. And this thought came through me in that moment as I felt this palpable energy in the room from all these women and from the women, the teachers at the front. This thought came through me, which was, I've been chasing the wrong kind of power my entire life. And this is the power that I really want, the power that's in this room right now that's in all of the women gathered here, that's in the women teachers up front, that's inside of me. That's that's the power that I really want. And that was a big part of my own journey of awakening to my, you know, my feminine power and also to frankly to my soul, to my connection to spirit, source, universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, so as a feminist spiritual teacher, this podcast and unwinding patriarchy is really at the heart of of who I am and the work that I do in the world. And, and honestly, it comes from my own pain points. You know, there's an expression that you teach what you most want to learn. And that has definitely been the case for me. There are so many ways that I have accidentally, inadvertently internalized messaging that I really don't believe. And by going along with that mainstream messaging, that cultural, you know, familiar or community beliefs and attitudes, it hasn't made me happy or fulfilled. And it, it feels like some of the biggest and most important work of my lifetime to intentionally unwind all the ways that I've inadvertently internalized patriarchy and then carry that out into the world to create external change as well. So, so yeah, this podcast really couldn't be more up my alley. <laughs> and, you know, I have all these little moments and stories throughout my life. Like the other week, my husband had an old swim buddy over for beers and I found myself, you know, trying to keep the kids quiet and out of their way so they could have a, a quality catch up and then also getting them like a cheese platter. <laughs> so serving them a cheese platter while same, simultaneously stewing in resentment because I realized it wouldn't even cross my husband's mind to do either mm -hmm. of those things, to get the kids out of the way or to make a cheese platter <laughs> if I had a girlfriend over <laughs> at, who I hadn't seen in a long time. And, you know, my husband is a kind, thoughtful, mm -hmm. loving, considerate man. And yet, since getting married and having kids, especially since having kids, I've noticed all of these outdated prescriptive roles that I automatically took on without pausing to consider if I wanted them. And frankly, at times, I have felt really 
annoyed and almost hopeless or overwhelmed that it feels like I need to educate my husband to help him feel motivated to create change and how we show up in partnership. So because we, we've both defaulted into these roles as you know, husband, wife and father, mother. And for me, that's when a lot of the inequality began in our partnership and how we each showed up. And so that's been a pain point of mine that I'm, you know, still working on. Um, and one of the reasons why I'm really motivated to do this work. And then also for me, my whole myth around success and what it means to be successful and how I, I chased a very uh, masculine and traditional and patriarchal definition of success for many years. And it left me depleted and exhausted and unfulfilled. So that's also been a big part of my own, my own journey. Hmm. Amazing. Thank you. And yeah, I, I know your husband and he's such a good guy and you know mine and he's such a good guy. And we're all like, we're all kind of (laughs) like in this together, figuring it out together. Right. Like, wait, why are we doing it this way? Like nobody's, I mean, with some people are like actual jerks, but usually (laughs) like the people we know, like so many of the people we know, it's like, wait, no, I didn't mean to, to kind of just automatically like enact these roles. We just kind of do it unintentionally and it has to have to be deliberate about figuring out how to change those those paths right yeah and and one of the things i've noticed lately and i'll just i'll i'll wrap this up but is also how my anger and rage which frankly is really more about patriarchy obviously than my husband yeah. but that the way that i communicate with him can have so can be laced with so many like generations of rage on behalf of women that mm. it doesn't make him want to step up as a partner with me because it's mm. so off-putting and he feels incredibly criticized. And so that's been something painful that I've been looking at and examining more fully recently and sort of the shadow side of my feminine rage, if you will, and and um, how it's not furthering the cause. It's not furthering the kind of partnership that I want. So yeah, it's there, it's it's layered. Mm-hmm. It's layered and multifaceted. There's just so many ways that I found myself unconsciously buying into all these myths about success, what it means to be successful at work and crush it in a man's world, while simultaneously internalizing these stereotypes based on a 1950s housewife, a full-time mom, who also, by the way, needs to be skinny and beautiful. I mean, it's insane. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I love doing with a lot of the online group coaching programs and in the book I'm writing is to name some of these gold standards that we're facing in all areas of our lives and all the pressure that women feel. Because when we start to name it and we become aware of it, that's the first step to changing it. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to talk about the beauty myth today because I think that's a one whole category where women have internalized so much pressure and so much of a sense of not enoughness. Mm -hmm. And bringing it to the surface to really examine it is going to be really useful, I know, for me and hopefully for the listeners as well. For sure. Yeah, that I would say that that really identifies probably for me one of the most useful and valuable aspects of the book is just that naming it. Like here's what's happening, especially when it was published in 1991. Um yeah, that's why I think it made waves when it came out was naming this this phenomenon that was happening in society so that people could start doing something about it. Exactly as you said. Okay, so let's let's start talking about the book, and really quickly, I'll just um, talk for a minute about its author. So Naomi Wolf was born in San Francisco, California, to a Jewish family. Her mother is an anthropologist, and her father was a Romanian-born scholar at UC Berkeley and a Yiddish translator. 
Wolf attended Yale University, receiving her Bachelor of Arts in English Literature in 1984. From 1985 to 87, she was a Rhodes Scholar at New College at Oxford University, and her initial period at Oxford was difficult for her because she experienced what she called, quote, raw sexism, overt snobbery, and casual anti-Semitism, end quote. Apparently, a professor at Oxford also assessed her writing as too personal and too subjective and advised her against submitting her doctoral thesis. And Wolf later talked about that by saying, quote, my subject didn't exist. I wanted to write feminist theory, and I kept being told by the dons there there was no such thing. And, oh. <laughs> right? And there was, I mean, it was just pretty new still, right? So... Um, and, and interestingly, the project she was trying to work on for her doctoral thesis was, you know, the beginning drafts, the beginning stages of the book that would become The Beauty Myth. So it was, she was trying to work on it then. She didn't finish her doctoral thesis at the time, but she did flesh out her ideas. And The Beauty Myth was published in 1991, and it became an international bestseller. It was named one of the 70 most influential books of the 20th century by the New York Times. And Gloria Steinem wrote, The Beauty Myth is a smart, angry, insightful book and a clarion call to freedom. Every woman should read it. And um, just to add to her list of celebrity endorsements, Betty Friedan wrote, in Allure magazine at the time, she wrote, the beauty myth and the controversy it is eliciting could be a hopeful sign of a new surge of feminist consciousness. So after Wolf published The Beauty Myth, she had a career in politics. It was mostly working with um, Democratic candidates in the United States brainstorming ways to reach female voters. She worked with Bill Clinton and later Al Gore. And then after that, she returned to Oxford finally, and she finished her PhD in English literature in 2015. I do have to throw in because if you look her up now, <laughs> she's gotten a little kooky in recent years. And so I just, <laughs> I have to like throw in that caveat because if you look her up like, oh, she's a heroine. I just, I just have to say like, just on, like we've said on other episodes, Sometimes we tell inspiring stories about the authors of these texts, and sometimes the authors of these texts do happen to be like really admirable people that we want to emulate, but not always. Podcasts like What's Her Name podcast or Encyclopedia Womanica, for example, they do a really great job of like highlighting women and telling women's stories, and that's awesome. Our project is not about the authors. It's about the history of patriarchy and the texts that have challenged patriarchy. And so um, the beauty myth itself as a work has stood the test of time, and it remains a staple on many women's studies lists because it raises so many critically important issues. So I just want to throw that out there. The beauty myth itself is critical reading. Naomi Wolf produced an amazing book that we're going to discuss, and the, but she is a little bit of a controversial figure herself. So mm. I also think it's interesting to point out, like we, we have this black and white thinking where someone yeah. is a hero or they've fallen right. and like we're human beings. We're all in this gray spectrum of messiness. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, a person can have these wonderful ideas and they can have other ideas that, you, that don't jive with you, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, I don't know. I, I like to have a more nuanced understanding of people. Yeah. You know, that's not like either you're a hero or you're, you're a disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Vanessa. That's so true. 
Oh, and really quickly, I just wanted to define a couple of terms before we start sharing passages of the book. I wanted to define just two terms for listeners that we'll refer to in the episode. The first one is the concept of shifts. So when I hear the word shift, I think of a change. But when Wolf talks about a first shift and a second shift, she's talking about shifts that you would work at a job. So right before the beauty myth was published, there was another book by an author called named Arlie Russell Hosschild, and she had just published her book, The Second Shift. And it pointed out that women were working a shift at their actual jobs, but then coming home and having to do a whole second shift of work with childcare and cooking and cleaning and running the family. And so Wolf builds upon that idea by saying that there's even a third shift that gets added. So when you hear the word shift, Usually it's it's referring to those shifts of work. And then the other term I wanted to define really quickly is the PBQ, which stands for the professional beauty qualification. And that's the standard that gets applied to women more than it does to men. And the best way that I've heard this described is in a hilarious op-ed in the New York Times by Jennifer Weiner, where she describes life as an amusement park. And for women, there's a sign outside the roller coasters that says, you must be this hot in order to participate. And there's no such requirement for men. So those are the two definitions that I wanted to just establish. Shift means a shift at work, and PBQ means the professional beauty qualification. We'll take turns just bringing out some quotes. And I think I have the first one, right, Vanessa? Yes, you do. Okay, the first theme I want to talk about is the idea that current standards of beauty are a means of controlling women and maintaining patriarchy. So Wolf says, quote, beauty is the last best belief system that keeps male dominance intact, end quote. So she starts by kind of recounting and summarizing the historical process through the 20th century that led to the point that she was writing it in in the early 90s. And she talks about a period in history that we talked about on our episode with my daughter Lucy on the UN Declaration of Human Rights with Eleanor Roosevelt. And this was the period of time when women had been constrained and confined to the home during the Victorian era. But then many women joined the workforce in order to support their countries during the world wars. And in joining the workforce, they learned new skills, they found new self-confidence, they gained some financial independence for the first time. And I should say, too, that we're, we're talking about women in the United States and in England, mostly. Um, and, and this happened in both countries, that when the men came back home from the wars, then the women were fired from their jobs so that the, the men could take back their positions. And Wolf cites that 3 million American women and 1 million British women were fired from their jobs at the end of World War II, just as a matter of course. Like, the men are back, they need their jobs, kind of nobody questioned it. And at that point, she describes a media campaign that glorified quote-unquote, women at home in magazines and TV ads. And that takes us, you know, into the historical era of the feminine mystique, which listeners will remember with Betty Friedan. It was written in 1963, and Wolf references the feminine mystique in her book, The Beauty Myth, by describing how marketers were capitalizing on American housewives in the 1950s and 60s. So Wolf says, quote, 
the marketer's reports described how to manipulate housewives into becoming insecure consumers of household products. A transfer of guilt must be achieved, they said. Capitalize on guilt over hidden dirt. Stress the therapeutic value of baking, they suggested. With X mix in the home, you'll be a different woman. They urged giving the housewife a sense of achievement to compensate her for a task that was endless and time-consuming. And oh the right? It's <laughs> so terrible. Ah! I know. <laughs> So she goes on to say that like, and these are quotes from actual like real ad execs that were doing this like on purpose. They said, quote, identify your products with quote unquote spiritual rewards for objects with added psychological value. The report concluded the price itself hardly matters, end quote. So Wolf points out that Betty Friedan's book, The Feminine Mystique, showed women how their insecurities were being manipulated to make money for advertisers because they totally were in the 50s and 60s. But so many people read The Feminine Mystique in the 60s that by the late 60s and 70s, a lot of women had figured it out and they'd they had moved beyond the model. Well, many women in my religious community, that wasn't true. But um, in the secular world, <laughs> many women had moved beyond that model of just, you know, the Donna Reed, the serene and demure homemaker. And um, and they entered the workforce again. But so um, what Naomi Wolf points out now, her contribution to this historical timeline is she's saying, Okay, so now what we're seeing is another marketing trend that's created to capitalize on women's insecurities. So Wolf says, quote, feminists inspired by Friedan broke the stranglehold on the woman's popular press of advertisers for household products who are promoting the feminine mystique. Then what happened is she said the diet and skincare industries became the new cultural censors of women's intellectual space. And because of their pressure, the gaunt youthful model supplanted the happy housewife as the arbiter of successful womanhood. End quote. So we'll <sighs> talk, right? So bad. Because what it is, to me, it turns my stomach because what it means is that the like advertisers couldn't get women to buy the latest model of home appliance anymore. They couldn't um, make women feel insecure about themselves as a housewife so that they needed to buy like the, the latest dishwasher or whatever. It got a lot more personal. Women were made to feel that in order to be successful women, they needed the latest model of body instead of mixer or whatever. Mm -hmm. Not just the latest clothes, which had always been the case for women, like forever, but a different physical body. And so she sums up, I think, kind of the thesis of her whole book by saying, quote, we are in the midst of a violent backlash against feminism that uses images of female beauty as a political weapon against women's advancement. The beauty myth. So that's her definition of the beauty myth. And really quick, I just, I have a couple of thoughts about this. So first of all, the timeline was, I thought, really useful. The re the reminder of kind of the synopsis of how we, we got there. Um, and I agree totally that, you know, in the early 90s and still today, it felt very current to me. Current standards of beauty totally keep women down. 
they keep women from achieving their potential because focusing on our appearance takes up tons of time and money and thought that could be better spent in other pursuits that have lasting value. And it's also, I thought it was really compelling some of the data that she shows that focusing on how we're perceived by others actually negatively impacts our cognition. You perform worse on tests when you're thinking about how you're being perceived. So this hyper-focus on beauty makes us sadder. It makes us less smart. And that's proven. And I agree that women are being purposely manipulated for profit, just like advertisers manipulate every demographic for profit, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's part of what they do. And I agree that one result of this is that women don't rise into their power and challenge the patriarchal system. I have one more thing that she says. Um, She says, quote, in assigning value to women in a vertical hierarchy according to a culturally imposed physical standard, it is an expression of power relations in which women must unnaturally compete for resources that men have appropriated for themselves, end quote. And I have a couple thoughts about this. On one hand, I definitely think that's true. Trump was praising women for their beauty and then denigrating other women based on their looks. And when he posted that unflattering picture of Ted Cruz's wife next to his own wife to compare their hotness, that was just like a very crass reminder of how powerful men reinforce those hierarchies all the time of comparing comparing women. That was a super gross one. And like we've talked about on other episodes, I feel like many of us still carry with us this residual belief from past eras, which maybe Vanessa, I mean, that's what sometimes we feel with this like accumulated women's rage from Mm -hmm. what we're feeling from our foremothers of like millennia of time of when men have had real ownership over women's bodies. And I mean, just as a personal anecdote, just to illustrate this, I just remember being I remember being in eighth grade and I remember the first time I wore eyeliner, just like, oh, I'm going to wear a little makeup to school. So I was just feeling a little bit um, aware, like self-conscious a little bit because I was wearing eyeliner. And the boy that I had a huge crush on that I sat next to, like I sat down and he looked at me and he he said, I remember he said, you look like a hooker. And like I had on the tiniest little bit of eyeliner. Um, and I just remember, I mean, it that wasn't the first time that boys had said that to me, but it kind of crushed me because I had such a big crush on him. And I just remember constantly, I'm sure you do too, Vanessa. I mean, like guys constantly making comments about my body, what I should wear, what I shouldn't wear, what made me hot, like from the time I was probably 12 all the way through. And of course, I liked their attention and I wanted to please boys. And I, like you talked about, I knew that's where the power was. And so I, I like, I, I was very motivated to want to please those boys. And they gave me all kinds of feedback on what I should do to please them to be sexual. But then at church, I would hear from this other group of boys and they used to say it was like funny, but they would say modest is hottest. And so at church, all the boys and men would tell me to cover up my body. And the adult men I admired, you know, would talk about if I showed my shoulders or if my shorts were like above my knee, then I was being like one man would say it was being a flesh merchant. And so I just, I mean, I felt like I was torn in half between two groups of men. 
um, just trying to please two opposite groups of men who were setting these expectations and beauty standards. And I just felt torn in half between being the Madonna and the whore. Um, So I totally relate to what Wolf is saying, that men create this system wherein women are trapped and it keeps us self-conscious and it keeps us from achieving our potential and it keeps women down. And and patriarchy is perpetuating that. And I absolutely agree. I have to throw in one more thing that on the other hand, when I think back to Wolf's claim that men use the beauty myth as a political weapon against women's advancement, I feel a little skeptical of one part of her claim, and that is that it seems like she's saying it's an intentional effort by men to subjugate women and to keep them from being empowered. And so like anytime she would talk about the patriarchy keeping women down through beauty standards, I would think like, who exactly is doing that? Like on purpose, are there men in an office building somewhere with a plaque on their door that says the patriarchy? <laughs> and they're like <laughs> laughing evilly, like, ha ha ha, now the women will never escape. We'll make them fixate on their looks so we can keep them sub- subjugated. <laughs> and I just don't think that exists. So all throughout the book, I kept waiting for Wolf to show like the wizard behind the curtain, like who's back there doing that on purpose. And she never did. And like I said, I just don't think that exists. I do think the beauty myth is real. I do think we all swim in the waters of patriarchy. I do believe there, I mean, there's sexism all around us. It's baked into everything. And I do believe women are buying into this craptastic lie and people make tons of money off of women's insecurities about our looks. But I do think if we try to point our fingers at quote unquote, the patriarchy, as if it's like specific men keeping women down through the beauty myth. I do think that's a little bit of a waste of time because instead we need to look at the patriarchal structures that we carry inside our own heads and do the work there rather than kind of externalizing it and looking for like a group of people to blame. Although there could be reform for sure in the beauty industry and, you know, advertisers and stuff, but I don't think it's like a group of men keeping women down on purpose. Those were my thoughts about that part. Yeah, I I actually really agree. And I too was waiting for her to show me like the wizard behind the curtain of just kind of proving this out. And it's sort of like the impact of it all is very true, but the intention behind it uh, and who's perpetrating it, as she claims, I, I that didn't totally resonate as much either. There's an interesting conversation to be had because when we say the patriarchy, it implies this group sort of against you versus just patriarchy. You're naming this matrix that we live in. You know, right. So it's the energy of it is different. And it kind of ties back for me to this rage that I sometimes project or the way that I say the patriarchy is very off-putting to my husband. Mm. So anyway. I totally, totally agree with that, Vanessa. Yes. Well, this is what today is all about, naming these things, but then trying to do it in a way that's useful and productive so we can change the world for the better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Exactly. So I'm going to transition now to talking about Um, how Naomi Wolf talks about the beauty myth in the workplace and how the workplace nurtures and sustains the beauty myth. So she has a whole chapter on work. And one of the quotes I wanted to share, she says, quote, as women demanded access to power, the power structure used the beauty myth materially to undermine women's advancement. Employers did not simply develop the beauty backlash because they wanted office decoration. It evolved out of fear. Women work hard, twice as hard as men. And while women represent 50% of the population, they perform nearly two-thirds of all working hours, receive only one-tenth of the world income, 
and own less than 1% of world property. Housework totals 40 billion hours of France's labor power. Women's volunteer work in the U.S. amounts to $18 billion a year. The economics of industrialized countries would collapse if women didn't do the work they do for free. As women began to do full-time paid work, they still did all or nearly all of the unpaid work as well. So women entered the workforce in mass in the 1980s. In the U.S., between 1960 and 1990, the number of women lawyers and judges rose from 7,500 to 180,000. Women doctors went from 15,000 or so to 108,000. Women engineers went from 7,000 to 174,000. Even with two shifts doing the majority of the housework, women would still challenge the status quo. So according to Wolf, someone had to come up with a third shift fast. But a real meritocracy means for men, more competition at work and more housework at home. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of asserting that because women are working so much harder, we would challenge the status quo really quickly. So this third shift was created, which is the beauty myth. So she claims that there's sort of this question of how can the power structure prevent women's challenge to the status quo? And she claims it was twofold. Number one, by reinforcing the second shift. And she says, quote, the failures of the American and even European state-funded childcare act as an effective drag on the momentum of this immigrant, immigrant group. What it needed was a replacement shackle, a new material burden that would drain surplus energy and lower confidence, an ideology that would produce the women workers it needs but only in the mold in which it wants them. And then the second way that they're preventing this challenge to the status quo, according to Wolf, is through the beauty myth and what she calls the PBQ or professional beauty qualification. Women's employment, this is a quote from the book, women's employment was stimulated by the widespread erosion of the industrial base and the shift to information and service technologies. Women are welcome to the labor pool, as expendable, non-unionized, low-paid, pink-collar ghetto drudges. Economist Marvin Harris described women as a literate and docile labor pool, and therefore desirable candidates for the information and people-processing jobs thrown up by modern service industries. The qualities that best serve employers in such a labor pool's workers are low self-esteem, a tolerance for dull, repetitive tasks, lack of ambition, high conformity, more respect for men who manage them than women who work beside them, and little sense of control over their lives. Oh, that last one really rings true. At a higher level, women middle managers are acceptable as long as they are male identified. I'm raising my hand here. (laughs) Mm. And don't force too hard up against the glass ceiling. And token women at the top are useful. The beauty myth is the last best training technique to create such a workforce. It does all these things to women during work hours, and then adds a third shift to their leisure time. And another quote from the book, she says, Superwoman, unaware of its full implications, had to address serious beauty labor to her professional agenda. Women took on all at once the roles of professional housewife, professional careerist, and professional beauty. Hmm. Who? Yes. Oof. And I think I don't, I, pretty much every woman I know would say that she feels tremendous pressure in all of these categories in life. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the symptoms that we're feeling. This overwhelm and burnout and exhaustion that so many women are struggling with today, I think is is one of the results of taking all, on all of these roles at once. So Wolf goes on to assert that the PBQ or professional beauty qualification is being extremely widely institutionalized as a condition for women's hiring and promotion. She says, quote, 
The PBQ began in the 1960s as large numbers of educated middle-class young women began to work in cities, living alone, between graduation and marriage. A commercial, sexualized mystique of the airline stewardess, the model, and the executive secretary was promoted simultaneously. Waitresses were told to wear tiger uniforms, paint their nails, and wear makeup to draw in male customers. She calls this the trickle-down effect of the PBQ, the professional beauty qualification. Then, she claims, it spread to receptionists and art gallery workers, women in advertising, merchandising, design and real estate, the recording and film industries, to women in journalism and publishing, then service industries like waitresses, bartenders, hostesses, catering staff. Then the PBQ was applied to any job that brings women in contact with the public. Here's another quote that really resonated. She said, the young working woman was blocked into a stereotype that used beauty to undermine both the seriousness of the work that she was doing and the implications of her new independence. Mm -hmm. And that quote really resonated for me. And I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, a time when feminism feminism told me I could do anything, be anything, and compete amongst the best of them if I so desired. The best of them, of course, being the boys. So I did. I loved, you know, winning math quizzes in elementary school and being picked first in dodgeball on the playground, as I mentioned. So I had this sort of pride in my skinned knees and straight A's and, you know, kind of had this intense career working on Wall Street. And I remember still, I still remember being told as an eager new investment banking analyst that one of the managing directors, which was a senior person on the team, that one of them had mentioned my name. And I felt so thrilled that my hard work was being recognized until my peer explained that my name was referenced only in the context of this MD perusing the women's photos in the analyst Facebook and making a list of who he wanted to have sex with. And Mm -hmm. that was a moment for me where I just felt sort of disillusioned, you know, like shocked, repulsed, sad, angry. And I don't even think I consciously realized it at the time, but something in me began to crack that day. This idea of being seen and valued for my hard work was tainted And it's sort of like he had tarred it in some way. In subtle and not so subtle ways, I was being told where my value lay and also what happens when women are too visible. Mm -hmm. And as Wolf illustrates, sort of like my perceived beauty was being used to undermine the seriousness of my contributions at work. And it just, I remember being so angry, like you don't, you're not even acknowledging my work. All you're seeing is whether I'm sexually attractive to you or not. It just, it felt like a punch in the gut. And yeah, it still, it still kind of does when I think back to it. Mm-hmm. So she goes on to say, in 1966, the National Organization for Women was founded in America. Woo, woo. And that mm-hmm. same year, its members demonstrated against the firing of stewardesses at the age of 32 and upon marriage, which also, P.S., is crazy. They used to do that, Amy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you're too old. Are you getting married? You're fired. So women began to yes. fight back, but they didn't always win. And there's a quote from the book where she says, what must this new serious professional woman look like? Television journalism vividly proposed its answer, that double image, the older man lined and distinguished seated beside a nubile, heavily made up female junior. That became the paradigm for the relationship between men and women in the workplace, intended at first to sweeten the unpleasant fact of a woman assuming public authority. The message is that a powerful man is an individual and that his maturity is part of his power. If a single standard were applied equally to men as to women in TV journalism, most of the men would be unemployed. (laughs) It's true. But the women beside them. It's true. Yeah. But the women beside them need youth and beauty to enter the same soundstage. 
With youth and beauty, then, the working woman is visible, but insecure, made to feel her qualities are not unique. And P.S., this is me jumping into the quote, um, not permanent. But without them, she's invisible. She falls literally out of the picture. For women, seniority does not mean prestige, but erasure. Mm -hmm. Okay. She goes on to say, is it any surprise that two decades into the legal evolution of the professional beauty qualification, working women are tense to the point of insanity about their appearance? The double standard for appearance is a constant reminder that men are worth more and need not try as hard. Wolf argues that the beauty myth has eroded women's self-esteem, making us ideal employees. Many economists, this is a quote, many economists agree that women do not expect promotion and higher wages because they've been conditioned by their work experience not to expect improvements in work status. Women are often unsure of their intrinsic worth in the marketplace, unquote. I mean, a lot of this really resonated with me as well. I, I also had experiences where, you know, men bonded at work in ways that excluded me as a woman and were based on beauty myth ideology and the sexualization of women. I still remember when I started working at this prestigious private equity firm in New York, I actually started three months earlier than my peer group for a variety of reasons and got assigned to this really big and important deal. And I was making really good inroads and I was contributing in a meaningful way. And I was excited to make my mark, you know? Um, and anyway, things were going really well. I was, felt like I was proving myself and I felt confident that I'd made strides when my peers joined the group and they were mostly all men. I think there might've been there might have, I think there were three women out of like 12 to 14. So actually better than most statistics. Um, the third day that this whole new group of whatever, 12 people started, we were in the third day after they'd started, we were in our big meeting room, this large conference room table. And I saw them all kind of like nodding and winking as they greeted each other to sit down in the chairs for the meeting. And there was this, it was sort of like there was a big inside joke that I wasn't part of. And I remember I really noticed it. And I remember thinking, wow, those guys have only been here three days and they're already like high-fiving and, you know, fist bumping with all these senior guys. Like, what's going on? What what did I miss here? I've been working my, my tail off for three months. <laughs> Come to find out that the senior guys and the junior guys had all gone out to strip clubs the night before. No way. Yes. And oh I just gosh. remember being so mad um, first of all, it was so inappropriate and, you know, derogatory towards women. But frankly, in terms of my career, I was I was just pissed off that they could be there for three days mm-hmm. and make more networking inroads than I had been able to make in three months with very diligent work. And I look, I'm not like a boring person. I think I can have a good yeah. time. I'm just not going to go yeah. to the strip club to do it. So right. for me, I always really felt this binary trade-off at work. Like I could be pretty and viewed sexually and not taken seriously, or I could become hyper-masculine, act really tough, put on this male persona and try to be one of the guys in order to be taken seriously. So I chose the latter. And frankly, I say this with a fair amount of shame, but like, I don't know, maybe a year later, I went to a strip club with some of my Mm -hmm. male colleagues. Mm -hmm. You know, I cursed like a sailor. I I actually have a dirty mouth in general. Like I still still curse, but I I exaggerated it a lot. And I dressed in these really like masculine looking pants and sharp blazers. And I wore a lot of brown and beige, even though now, now that I do work I love, I've realized I, I love bright colors and patterns. And I always wear like lots of bright colors, but I wouldn't have dared do it back then because I didn't want to stand out as overly feminine. And 
I even wolfed down like a seven inch Subway sandwich once in, in a dare in under seven minutes while all the senior partners <laughs> cheered me on. I mean, it was basically like I was in a fraternity, you know? Wow. That's yeah. crazy, Vanessa. And that those are your choices. Like those are the only choices. It just is really striking me as you're talking about it. It's so discouraging. Yeah. And then I remember there was one woman in my group who was like a, a more feminine, more sexual and everyone whispered about how she was maybe hooking up with some guy in a conference room, which, I mean, if she mm. actually was, that is inappropriate to do that at work, fine. But now that I think about it, nobody whispered about the guy who was right. making out with her. Like she, right. So she was kind of, it really was the, my paradigm wasn't so much Madonna whore. It was more like, be a man, be a whore. <laughs> like, yeah, totally. You know? Um, so for me, I think my biggest struggles weren't necessarily with chasing the PBQ so much as trying to distance myself from the PBQ and then losing myself and my feminine power in the balance. But I still did feel that pressure of the professional beauty qualification. And I would spend an extra 20 minutes, you know, blow drying my hair and putting on makeup that my male colleagues never felt the need to do. So both living under the pressure of the PBQ while simultaneously trying to distance myself from the PBQ, it's doubly exhausting and frankly, neither place feels like home. And, uh, you know, I, so I felt kind of seen and heard by Naomi Wolf in the book when she says, the PBQ keeps women materially and psychologically poor. PBQ leeches money and leisure and confidence from this rising class. It tires women out. Working women are exhausted, bone tired in a way that their male colleagues may not be able to imagine. It is this exhaustion that may call a halt to women's future collective advancement. And that is the point of it, end quote. And to your point earlier, Amy, I'm not sure I fully agree that it's strategic and intentional mm -hmm. to block our advancement, but I do agree that women are even more exhausted today, frankly, than when this book was written, um, because these standards have only gotten crazier since then. Mm -hmm. So she goes on to say, professional high-achieving women have, because of it, just enough energy, concentration, and time to do their work very well, but too little for the kind of social activism or freewheeling thought that would allow them to question and change the structure itself. <gasps> oh, this part gets me all fired up. She goes on to say, the beauty myth, quote, keeps women isolated. Collective female solidarity in the workplace would force the power structure to tackle the expensive concessions that many economists now believe are necessary if women are to have truly equal opportunity, daycare, flex time, job security after childbirth and parental leave. Yes. From my experience, this is way bigger, a way bigger problem that keeps women exhausted even more so than the beauty myth. And then she goes on to say, quote, all labor systems that depend on coercing a workforce into accepting bad conditions and unfair compensation have recognized the effectiveness of keeping that workforce exhausted to keep it from making trouble, end quote. Whew. So overall, I appreciate Wolf's point that the beauty myth added a third shift for working women and that there's this double standard that, and women feel pressure to look good as well as perform well. And you know, just one more quick story. I remember before giving my TEDx talk, worrying about which dress I was going to wear and questioning mm -hmm. my appearance, you know? And I, and then I remember thinking, I bet hardly any of the men who have given a TEDx talk have spent more than 10 minutes thinking about what they're going to wear. Mm -hmm. Like I should be focused on the content of my talk, not on the appearance of what, what dress I'm going to wear. And this is precious time, you know, that I could be using to prepare my presentation. Instead, here I am shopping for the quote unquote, perfect dress. Mm-hmm. So it really is something that um, distracts us from having the impact we want to have. But I also think 
that sexual harassment, unconscious bias, and microaggressions negatively impact women's abilities to advance at work, no matter how hard we push ourselves. You know, the whole strip club, golf club, networking, conversations that happen in the locker room. I mean, there's so many exhausting dynamics when you try to break through the current power system. And so in my opinion, the beauty myth is definitely one of them, and it's one of the biggest ones, but there are many, many other factors at play that contribute to you know this sense of not creating the change, not having the change we want to see in the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So another section that we really wanted to highlight in the book is how she talks about the beauty myth being fueled by marketing and women being exploited without always knowing it. So she says, quote, women's magazines for over a century have been one of the most powerful agents for changing women's roles. And throughout that time, they have consistently glamorized whatever the economy, their advertisers, and during wartime, the government needed at that moment from women. The traditional women's magazines, according to her, established a strong toehold in the 1950s when they encouraged women to strive for perfection in three main roles, the good wife, the good mother, and the efficient homemaker. And since then, it's morphed, where she says the definition of perfection, this is a quote, however, changes with the needs of employers, politicians, and advertisers. So she also continues to say in the book, quote, in the 1950s, advertising revenue soared, shifting the balance between editorial and advertising departments. Women's magazines became of interest to the companies that, with the war about to end, were going to have to make consumer sales take the place of war contracts. The main advertisers in the women's magazines responsible for the feminine mystique were seeking to sell household products. But then when the restless, isolated, bored, and insecure housewife fled the feminine mystique for the workplace, advertisers faced the loss of their primary consumer. Somehow, somewhere, someone must have figured out that they will buy more things if they are kept in the self-hating, ever-failing, hungry, and sexually insecure state of being aspiring beauties end quote. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this goes back to what you were saying earlier, Amy, and it all rang so true to me. And I also find the timeline to be really helpful context to understand how the feminine mystique morphed into the beauty myth. Because when I see those, you know, 1950s housewife ads with sparkling floors and vacuuming being such a joy, I kind of roll my eyes and I feel like I can dismiss them a little more readily than the ads of beautiful young women which can still suck me into my own insecurities. Like maybe I should buy a cuter outfit or da, da, da. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also encouraging to imagine that, you know, maybe the same way that I look at the old 1950s ads of women with their hair and curlers and aprons on. And I think that's not me. Hopefully a future generation of women will look at the ads of our generation where the faces of older women with skin too tight from Botox or ad copy suggesting how to win a guy in 10 days or whatever, maybe mm-hmm. they'll roll their eyes and think, that's so not me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I want to highlight is even though I say that I roll my eyes at those old advertisements of women in aprons mopping floors, I have noticed that unconsciously I've internalized so much of that messaging about what it means to be a good wife, a good partner, a good homemaker. You know, my story earlier about making the cheese plate for my husband and his buddy, like where did I learn how to do that? No one ever sat me down and said, it's your responsibility to make sure guests have something to nibble on. But, and yet I've taken on that role and my husband has not. And why? I mean, partly it's because of what was modeled for each of us in our families growing up and in the culture at large. 
So I might roll my eyes, but I still make the cheese plate. <laughs> and so the point is that, you know, this cultural messaging is super powerful. And first they were selling us appliances and then beauty products, but they're always selling something. And it really behooves us to remember that. So, you know, why do women's magazines have such an influence over us? Well, Wolf argues that it's in part because these magazines are all most women have as a window into what it's like to be a woman, because our overall culture takes a male point of view on what's newsworthy. You know, we think about uh, the Super Bowl on the front page, and there's, I mean, there's so many ESPN channels, <laughs> while a change mm. in childcare legislation is buried in a paragraph on the inside page of some, you know, newspaper. Mm-hmm. So, and of, she also goes on to point out that of 50 years of Life magazine covers, only 19 were of women who were not actresses or models. So there's no mainstream journalism that treats women's issues with the seriousness they deserve. And so these magazines, in some ways, are all that we've got to go on. And these magazines promise to tell women what men really want. But as Wolf points out, quote, the magazines are not oracles speaking for men. One study found that our data suggests women are misinformed and exaggerate the magnitude of thinness men desire, end quote. So they're misinformed. And she goes on to say, what editors are obliged to appear to say that men want from women is actually what their advertisers want from women. Hmm. That one really struck home as well. And it it reminds me of, you know, kind of those silly pages you'll see in like an Us Weekly or some other magazine with a celebrity. It says, look what J-Lo has in her purse with images of lipstick and other products that this celebrity supposedly carries in her purse. And I remember when I worked, you know, in private equity firm uh, investing in consumer products, we owned a skincare brand and a makeup brand. And I learned that those ad, those those placements you see of like what so-and-so has in her purse, those are actually paid placements. Paid for oh, by that really? particular, yeah, paid for by that particular branded product that is being featured. Wow. So, yeah, and I don't even know if those celebrities have ever heard of or used those products. I, you wow. know, but as as women, we're being manipulated all the time through this type of yeah. advertisement, and it's misleading yeah. and damaging to our sense of self. Not only because we probably don't even need those products and they won't be that effective, but even mm. more insidious, we're also being told that we should value what J Lo values. That someone else is the harbinger of our tastes and what we should like and buy. You know, it's not, we're not being told like, discover who you truly are, get still Mm -hmm. and quiet and listen to your inner truth. It's more like, you know, be more like JLo. Here's how you can be more like JLo, buy this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So effectively as women, we're constantly being told that we're not enough as we are. And it's done through all of this advertising. Wolf goes on to point out, quote, but the relationship between the reader and her magazine doesn't happen in a context that encourages her to analyze how the message is affected by the advertiser's needs. It is emotional, confiding, defensive, and unequal. And, you know, uh, recently, a few months ago, I, Vanessa, was chatting with two moms in the parking lot at preschool drop-off, and we got to talking about advertising and its impact on women. And this one woman said that her dad was actually worked in advertising his whole career. And one really great thing he did for her and her siblings growing up is, first of all, he wouldn't let them have any magazines in the house or watch any commercials. He wouldn't even let them buy Mm. clothes that had a brand name like Gap on it because Mm. he would say, what are you selling when you're wearing Mm. that? And whenever a commercial did sneak its way into their lives, he would always say, where's the lie? And he would have his Mm. children point out the lie the advertiser was telling them in order to sell a product. And I just thought that was a really great question to ask ourselves and to ask our children when we see advertising, 
where's the lie? Hmm. Or at least like, what are they trying to sell me here? And the lie of women's magazines in some ways is that they have our back, that they care about us and can be trusted. When actually most of them, it's the predominant motivation is the advertising revenue. So as Wolf shares, the voice of the magazine gives women an invisible female authority figure to admire and obey, parallel to the mentor-protege relationship that many men are encouraged to forge in their educations and on the job, but which women are rarely offered anywhere else but in their glossy magazines. The voice encourages that trust. It has evolved a tone of allegiance to the reader, of being on your side with superior know-how and resources. Wow, I thought that was really interesting. But I also get excited that there's like new, there's new solutions being developed. You know, I have a friend and classmate from Stanford who founded something called Ceresa, which is all about matching young women with senior female mentors and offering them all kinds of resources to navigate their career and life choices so that we can have, you know, a voice we can trust with some authority that really does have our back and that doesn't have an ulterior motive the way the magazines and the advertisers you know, I've gotten in bed together. So there's this consistent ulterior motive that's just part of whatever they're showing us. Hmm. Um, and Gloria Steinem actually argued that advertisers don't believe in female opinion makers, and it's the advertisers who've got to change. And Wolf says that women need to change too. She says, you know, only when we take our own mass media seriously and resist its expectations that we will submit to still more instructions on how to wash our hair well, advertisers can see that women's magazines must be entitled to as wide a measure of free speech as those for men. And if you think about this, I know you're going to talk about it more, Amy, but advertising has shifted with social media. Now you can have an influencer who uses a product in a sponsored post. Usually it's flagged as sponsored, which is helpful, but you don't always know. And it's still human nature to assume that the person promoting a product has only our best interests at heart. You know, if we've, mm-hmm. if we've developed some level of trust with them. And now the floodgates have really opened. Young girls, you know, fresh off, fresh off the, the Bachelor franchise TV show can become influencers and promote beauty products. And they themselves may not be aware of how the beauty myth is using them to fulfill its own ends. Mm. So now when you see an influencer on Instagram, it's important to also ask, where's the lie? So she goes on to say, the advertisers is a quote, The advertisers who make women's mass culture possible depend on making women feel bad enough about their faces and bodies to spend more money on worthless or pain-inducing products than they would if they felt innately beautiful. End quote. Mm -hmm. Rings very true to me. And I've had a few times in my life, actually, when I lived in the wilderness without any advertising or even without a mirror, without a shower Mm -hmm. for 30 days or more, and it felt so liberating. I mean, these magazines really do hold up a painful mirror and these images that are unattainable. And when we start to separate out the advertiser's intentions and objectives from our own, we can see that they're not aligned at all. It's like peeling back the curtain on The Wizard of Oz. We have this quote unquote trusted source that is really a fake, a phony peddling snake oil with a fancy bottle and eye-catching copy. And it, you know, it makes us believe that we need it. And for myself personally, I've never liked those magazines, but I do pick them up from time to time, especially when I'm in line at the grocery store or at the airport. And I've I've often felt annoyed by the demeaning tone, but it still mm. impacts me. And you know, honestly, a lot of my girlfriends are buying those products or getting Botox, doing these other procedures to look younger these days. And I compare myself to them. And then it's like, well, maybe I should do that too. So even if you don't read the magazines or you don't want to conform to those standards, the standards are all around you. 
Now I've had several girls weekends or, or girls dinners that kind of devolved into women talking about all the procedures they wanted to get done on their faces. Like, I'm going to do this laser thing and this and that. And I say this with so much love and respect because it's important not to judge each other and to own, you know, if we do feel judgment, own that maybe as a projection of, of your own stuff. But my point is that even if you avoid the magazines, it's so pervasive that I found it hard to avoid the pressure to look young, mm-hmm. which is, you know, what my my demographic at least is constantly facing with the beauty myth right now is the pressure to look young. Mm-hmm. That and always be skinny. <laughs> mm-hmm. But my friends seem less concerned with that than aging. Mm-hmm. So again, it helps to question who is benefiting from this behavior that feels so bad to me and what is the lie that I'm being told? Totally. I think those are such powerful, important questions. What's the lie I'm being told? And is there someone telling me this so they can make money off of me? Like you said, is someone like benefiting from this? I think that's so important. And that leads right into the next section that I'm going to highlight from the book, which is the beauty myth in media. And of course, when Naomi Wolf was writing this book, it was in the 1980s. It was published in 91. But of course, this has only been amplified since it was published with social media now. And so... I want to start this particular section going all the way back to Mary Wollstonecraft because listeners will remember that she made observations on this exact same phenomenon in 1792, almost exactly 200 years before the beauty myth was written. But it's just like kind of disheartening to see how little has changed when we listen to Wollstonecraft. And I'm going to read just a tiny bit from Wollstonecraft. She says, quote, taught from infancy that beauty is woman's scepter. The mind shapes itself to the body, and roaming round its gilded cage only seeks to adorn its prison. Men have various employments and pursuits which engage their attention and give character to the opening mind, but women, confined to one, and having their thoughts constantly directed to the most insignificant part of themselves, seldom extend their views. End quote. So Wollstonecraft is saying, you know, boys and men have like many, many different employments and pursuits which engage their attention and their talents and their creativity and and meaning boys and men have goals and activities and careers that they spend their mental energy on and, and, and they spend their attention and energy thinking about what they can do. Girls and women, on the other hand, were told by the patriarchal culture of the time, and that was voiced explicitly by Rousseau, that the only one thing that should engage girls and women's attention was their beauty. And the whole purpose of their existence was to be pleasing to men. So they learned to spend their mental energy and attention thinking about how they were perceived rather than what they could do. And she said, you know, Wollstonecraft famously says, the mind shapes itself to the body and roaming round its gilded cage only seeks to adorn its prison. And as I was thinking about this, Vanessa, I thought this is kind of an example of what you and I were talking about earlier, where you and I are coming to this problem in the beauty myth from completely opposite places as we're landing in the same place because you just you just described in your in your section how working women in the 80s and 90s and then yourself in the 2000s and into you know current times you women have all this pressure of being a working woman and on top of that being the perfect wife and mother and on top of that keeping up with these impossible beauty standards 
Um, and so you've got like this, these layers and layers of pressures for women. Mm -hmm. And for me, I was raised in more like what Wollstonecraft is describing where, um, women really only did home life. And then with the space that was left, it was really devoted to beauty. I mean, I really observed really throughout my life that sometimes for women, the rest of the, I mean, and for, for moms and everybody knows I am a full-time parent. I was the whole time I was raising my kids and that can be a very demanding full-time job for sure. But I will say that when space does open up in the day for a woman and especially like as kids get older and you're not like having to do that, like in the trenches, constant work with the kids, that space sometimes gets filled up with pursuit of beauty, honestly, like, and that can mean like the body and the face and the hair and the nails and the clothes and even the home and stuff. And I really noticed that that was a, a lot of pressure that I had on me of like, really, is this the way I'm going to spend any time that I now have available to me now that my kids are getting a little bit older? And that to me personally, I was just like, gosh, I have a lot more that I want to do. But my point is no matter where we're coming from, this pressure to be beautiful, which men just do not have on them in the same way, is in my view, like all that pressure and all of that thought, like it gets to a point where it is a total time suck and it just makes us sad. It keeps us from living our one wild and precious life to its full potential. It really does. And like you pointed out, like it's just kind of sickening to think that it's being orchestrated in ad in advertising rooms, like really on purpose, like how can we get money from people? How can we get money from women? We'll make them feel insecure about their looks and then they'll have to buy all this crap. And that just makes me mad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And I mean, and there are some campaigns that are now like embrace your whole body and, totally. you know, certain companies that are showing different sizes. And, but then it's, I mean, yeah, it, that even gets whitewashed where sometimes now brands are taking social justice causes and like just yep. tapering them on top of advertising. Totally. It's hollow. So it's, it is, there's layers and layers to it. Layers and layers. <laughs> Well, and the other thing I just wanted to name, like when you're talking about, you know, pursuing beauty and beauty of the body and the clothes and the home, or even like using your free time for that, it's, it is nuanced, but I find that when I tune into myself and my, what I call your true North star, star, instead of all these gold standards, you can connect with what really matters to you. And so some days actually maybe, you know, decluttering a room or buying pretty flowers for your home, it brings you genuine pleasure or going yes. to move your body in an exercise class or is the the motivation, the intention behind the exercise class, like I got to go fit into these skinny jeans and I'm going to push myself and, you know, like this very forceful, painful version of it. And so even the same activity can have a very different intention behind it or energy to it when we do it. And I think we are so much more capable and intuitive than we realize to tune in with ourselves and what feels good and how we want to spend our time. I'm I'm so glad you said that because I mean as I'm pushing back against that pressure then I fear that maybe I can articulate my frustration with it in a way that then sounds judgmental and so I'm so glad that you talked about that nuance and I'm not I mean I did wake up full disclosure I woke up this morning <laughs> and after my run like I did get dressed in clothes that I felt are cute I put makeup on and but 
but sometimes I wear makeup and sometimes I don't. And and exactly like you said, what I try, what I'm really trying to do is being in tune with myself and thinking, what, why am I doing this? Is it for me or is it in unhealthy pressure to keep up or pressure to conform or pressure to measure up or whatever? Um, so I think you're right. It's all about our intention and yeah. so important not to judge each other too. So I didn't mean to sound judgmental of others oh, you, either. So I'm glad you pointed that out. Yeah. And I don't think you did sound judgmental, but it is like, I think we can project our pain so easily and our yes. judgment onto others because yes. we're being judged all the time and we're right. in so much pain. So yeah. it is, there's a lot to it. Uh, I know. And I, I literally put on makeup to drop my kids off at soccer camp this morning. And mm-hmm. then I was kind of annoyed because I was tired. I didn't really feel like doing that. But all these <laughs> other moms had looked cute like yesterday. <laughs> and then and then we went there and I was almost going to just leave them in the parking lot. And then I was annoyed that I had bothered to put on makeup and no one was going to see me. I mean, the whole like That's just one average morning that I don't even think yeah. about all these things that are running through my mind that are so silly and unnecessary. And I mean, more than anything, I just want us as women to have so much compassion for ourselves and to understand Mm -hmm. that we didn't create all of this and Mm -hmm. to not go into shame or blame or self-criticism or criticism of others and to be able to laugh at the insanity of it all sometimes and be kind to ourselves and then choose differently if we Mm -hmm. want to. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So important. Thanks, Vanessa. Okay. So the next part that Wolf says Um, And it's on the same topic. She uses the analogy of the medieval torture device called the Iron Maiden. And she says this, quote, The original Iron Maiden was a medieval German instrument of torture, a body-shaped casket painted with the limbs and features of a lovely, smiling young woman. The unlucky victim was slowly enclosed inside her. The lid fell shut to immobilize the victim, who died either of starvation or, less cruelly, of the metal spikes embedded in her interior. The modern hallucination in which women are trapped or trap themselves is similarly rigid, cruel, and euphemistically painted, end quote. So I kind of loved that analogy and and it kind of goes along with what we were just saying that sometimes we trap ourselves in that thing with just this, you know, this body smiling and beautiful on the outside, but it's a prison inside. And sometimes we can feel like we're dying in there, but we keep up this facade because society is telling us that we have to keep up the facade because beauty is a woman's power. And that harms all of us. Next, Wolf talks about women's magazines. And in the 90s, that was, of course, like the way that the beauty myth was propagated because there wasn't internet yet. And um, she says that when she was researching for the book, she interviewed a young woman who said this, So this is like a teenager saying, I buy the magazines as a form of self-abuse. They give me a weird mixture of anticipation and dread, a sort of stirred up euphoria. Yes, wow, I can be better starting right this minute. Look at her, look at her. But right afterward, I feel like throwing out all my clothes and everything in my refrigerator and telling my boyfriend never to call me again and blowtorching my whole life. I'm ashamed to admit that I read them every month. And that's mm. the end of that quote. And so, I mean, right, like even even in the late 80s, early 90s, Wolf is talking about like, oh, it, you know, magazines airbrush their photos and there's this new technology where you can doctor a photograph to look real when it's not. And, you know, just reading it now, <laughs> we're, I'm just like shaking my head going, you have no idea what's coming. It's going to mm-hmm. get so much worse. Um, 
because back then a person couldn't alter their own pictures, but now of course everybody alters their photos and, and, you know, just from the articles, I'm sure all of us are reading right now about like a large percentage of girls and women won't even post a picture on Instagram unless it's enhanced in some way. And so everything about the beauty myth is amplified by social media and just the the amount that we're being sold about beauty, which isn't even real and makes normal women feel terror about ourselves is just, again, it's just amplified. And I have to point out too, like even in the cases, and I've read articles about this too, the cases of girls and women who actually are society's idea of ideal beauty. I mean, it's so hard on them too and and um, harmful to their mental health, just the inordinate amount of time spent fixating on physical appearance and then trying to get approval and then self-worth that's dependent on how many likes and shares and and it's just unhealthy for everybody, whether it's like, oh, I was born in a body and with a face and whatever that happens to be society's ideal, that's harmful. It can be harmful or people who aren't and feel bad about themselves. So Wolf says, quote, while the beautiful woman is briefly at the apex of the system, this is, of course, far from the divine state of grace that the myth propagates. The pleasure to be had from turning oneself into a living art object is some kind of power when power is in short supply, but it is not much compared to the pleasure of getting back forever inside the body, the pleasure of shedding self-consciousness and narcissism and guilt like a chain mail gown, the pleasure of the freedom to forget all about it, end quote. And that reminds me, Vanessa, of when you talked about going camping, like without a mirror, without a phone, and just being like, I'm just in my body, in yeah. the world, forgetting about all of it. And just, yeah, you do feel lighter and clearer and happier. So um, liberated. Yeah, liberated. Yes, it's really liberating. And I just have to point out, because I want to hear, I, I do have a question for you, Vanessa, about mm -hmm. how you do this. But I loved that phrase in that passage I just read that she says like, yeah, being, being hot, being beautiful, like playing the game, having the people in charge. And it is, does feel like it is a patriarchal construct, right? Of being like, we made up the game and you win, you get the gold star, you're hot. It feels good. And she says, it's a kind of power when power is in short supply. And I loved that line because I think like, no, there needs, there is a different and better power. And so we do need to think really carefully about whether we're upholding and participating in that system that is not good for any of us. So I wanted to know what you do to combat this, this whole thing, right? If, if we're feeling like we're valued mostly just for our looks and we've internalized it because we've lived in this world, like how do you combat that? Oh my God. That's first of all, that's such a big question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just solve all of this, the end result of patriarchy. Okay. Boom. Go. Uh, <laughs> but actually this is a big part of what I'm wanting to do in my work in the world. And I mean, there's a few different components to it. I think practicing radical self-compassion is certainly part of it. And then also naming it when you're stuck in the compare despair. So there's, there's a story I tell in my book when, when you first learn to meditate, the teachers, you teach you something where you put yourself in the seat of the observer, meaning you sit there in stillness and then you notice your mind wander and go, oh, I got to go grocery shopping later. Should I get the chicken or the turkey? <laughs> and, you, mm -hmm. and you just label it, oh, worry, oh, planning, oh, thinking of the future, 
oh, sadness about the past. So you start to label the thoughts and the emotions as they surface. And what happens is as soon as you label something, oh, there's worry, you are not the worry anymore. You're not Mm -hmm. believing the story of worry. You have elevated your consciousness. You've elevated yourself to the seat of the observer who is witnessing the worry and who is labeling it. So I find you can apply that same framework to something like the beauty myth. And so as soon as you notice that you're caught in some version of compare despair, you want to have the awareness to label it. So what I call it, I name it in my book. I say, notice it and name it and choose differently. So you notice it. Oh, there I am in compare despair. Oh, I'm on Instagram and I feel like crap. So you notice it. You have to notice it and name it. And look, sometimes you're not going to name it until three days later. You're not Mm going to name it in the moment. But it's it's about starting to become aware of our own cycles and patterns that feel painful to us. So noticing it, naming it, and then choosing differently. So for me, I might go, oh, I'm in compare despair right now. Let me, um, whatever topic I'm in compare despair, let's say I, I see cute pictures of families on Instagram that are all beauty, beautiful and happy. And the kids are actually looking at the camera and smiling. <laughs> and I might go, God, my family never goes anywhere fun. And we just lie around on the couch and okay, name it, compare despair. And then choose differently, put down my phone, stop looking at Instagram and get out of that cycle. Maybe I go for a walk. Maybe I actually just take a moment and think of three things I appreciate about myself as a mother. Um, That's a great one, doing appreciations. You might want to even do deeper inner healing work, doing a visualization. Sometimes I'll work with my inner child. I found for me when I go into compare despair, it's always, always because this wounded little girl in me feels like she's not good enough. So often I will do a visualization, I will imagine her, and I will give her the love, the approval, the mothering that I'm desperately craving when I'm feeling that not good enough energy. So I have some you know, guided meditations to help people do that, um, but you can also just do it on your own. So those are the kinds of things that I found useful. And I, I also find it helpful to follow people on Instagram or social media who are vulnerable and messy and mm-hmm. show their real authentic selves so that I feel like I'm not alone in my struggles. Those are the kinds of people that I want as role models and leaders right now to surround myself with people who are willing to be open with their real messy selves. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a simple way to do that at work, depending on the kind of environment you're in, if this is people are open to trying it or not, you can start meetings. I got this from one of my professors from Stanford and a mentor of mine, Carol Robin. She'll start meetings at work with a check-in. If you really knew me, you'd know that. And then you say that. Uh, So that's a simple example of a way that you can start to peel back some of the facades that we all live in. And And then we're in our singular prisons thinking that we're alone. So when you ask those kinds of questions, you can feel such a greater sense of connection and common humanity and as though we're not alone in these struggles. And that's honestly, Amy, one of the things you're doing with this podcast, which is why I'm so thrilled you're doing this. It's pulling back the curtain on a lot of this stuff. Mm, Thanks. Thank you. That's such good advice. Like you mentioned earlier, two groups that are working on this a lot that I do like to follow what they're doing is Dove, the soap company, because they've been running a really great campaign since 2014 called the Real Beauty Campaign. Um, And then the other one that I would love listeners to be aware of, because I think it's so awesome. My sister Courtney mentioned it on her episode on the morality of birth control, but it's called Beauty Redefined. And if you look it up, they're at morethanabody.org. 
And Beauty Redefined is run by two sisters. They're identical twins, Lindsay and Lexi Kite. They both have PhDs. And the basic thesis of their project is that there are a lot of campaigns right out there right now who are telling all women in their like different diverse ways of appearing that they're all beautiful. And that's great, right? Like that's totally an improvement. It's awesome. But these two sisters um, are saying that while that's a step in the right direction, there's more to a woman than just being beautiful. And so they emphasize that when we're still fixated on how we're being perceived, whether that's negative or positive, we're still trapped. So oh, that, I love well, that so much. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, I feel like, yep, that's the next step. Because like, mm-hmm. and it reminds me again of Wollstonecraft when she said the mind is still shaped to the to its prison. It's still roaming around that cage. And that's the beauty myth, right? And so the Kite sisters, Lindsay and Lexi Kite, they say their mantra is my body is an instrument, not an ornament. So they focus on what our bodies can do rather than how our bodies are being perceived, whether that's beautiful or not. And so they focus on helping girls and women develop um, what they call body image resilience, which is exactly what you just described, Vanessa, in terms of like being mindful and um, having strategies of what to do when we find ourselves in that despair place. Um, so anyway, I've just been reading everything from these these women, everything on their website and their blog. Um, my sister Courtney just gave me their book, which is called More Than a Body. Your body is an instrument, not an ornament. And it came out this year. So, mm-hmm. And they have a fantastic TEDx talk also called Body Positivity or Body Obsession, Learning to See More and Be More. So anyway, highly recommend their work. It's really helpful in changing our minds. I can't wait to check it out. And it's so interesting that line, my body is an instrument, not an ornament, because I had a similar epiphany in my own life as a college athlete. I noticed that myself and many of the women who played sports, it, it, at least this is complete, completely anecdotal. I have not done any res, you know, formal research, but it appeared that there were fewer eating disorders and the mm-hmm. athletes didn't diet and somehow miraculously seemed to avoid the statistics around you know, girls and um, eating disorders. And I came up with my own theory at the time that it was because we were using our bodies as instruments on the field, on the court, in the pool, that it was easier to view our bodies as more than, you know, just ornamental. And it's one of the reasons why I decided a long time ago, even before having kids, if I had a daughter, that I would kind of insist that she play some kind of sport. I mean, it doesn't have to be an organized sport, individual team, it could be anything, but just something could be rock climbing, anything to just feel the usefulness of her body in motion in pursuit of something that brought her joy. And Mm. I think that that's, you know, it's just an interesting connection to help expand our horizons beyond just viewing our bodies as instrumental because there's so much messaging that that that's all we are is something Mm. to look at. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So the last point that we want to talk about, and we'll each take a turn on this, is just listing a few ways that the beauty myth really has dire consequences for women, physically, mentally, economically, emotionally. Um, And so, I I mean, the whole book is a warning of the damage that the beauty myth does to women, but I'll share a couple of examples. And then, Vanessa, you can share a couple of examples too before we wrap up. So one is that, and we've already touched on this a little bit, but the beauty myth tells women that our value is only in beauty and that beauty equals youth. 
And so that really means for women that we only have value for a very short, short part of our lives, right? And, and that means that self-esteem suffers greatly as we get older and we have a lot of anxiety about getting older, whereas the same is not true for men because their value is not in their looks in the same way. So I want to share one quote about this. Quote, women's magazines ignore older women or pretend they don't exist. Magazines try to avoid photographs of older women. And when they feature celebrities who are over 60, retouching artists conspire to help beautiful women look more beautiful, i.e. less their age. And then she continues, by now, readers have no idea what a real woman's 60-year-old face looks like in print because it's made to look 45. Worse, 60-year-old readers look in the mirror and think they look too old because they're comparing themselves to some retouched face smiling back at them from a magazine. To airbrush age off a woman's face is to erase women's identity, power, and history. End quote. I'm just going to put that on my mirror for the next few decades (laughs) to help remind me to just lean into it and embrace it. the next point that I wanted to to highlight, because I think this is a really important one, is that the beauty myth tells us that beauty equals whiteness. And for me, one of the most heart-wrenching parts of the whole podcast actually has been episodes with friends of color who have shared how they felt growing up as especially one's Um, And this has happened multiple times with friends who had never shared this with me, especially friends of color who grew up as, you know, in a small minority in a place that was majority white and just the, the anxiety and the sadness that they felt. And my friend Suzette talked about her mom hot combing her hair to make it straight and how that would burn her ears and burn her scalp to make it straight like white people's hair. And it just like was like, gut-wrenching to hear. I just didn't know that that's what that meant. And there are so many other Caucasian-centric aspects of the beauty myth. And I was really thinking about this, and I I actually asked my daughters about it, and they recommended just Googling decolonize beauty. And there are lots and lots of initiatives now that are really pushing back against those white beauty standards. There's also an episode on NPR's Code Switch called Is Beauty in the Eyes of the Colonizer that that talks about this. So this is something that I'm really digging into a lot right now. So so important. It's so important. So another one, and this is the last one I'll share, is that the beauty myth tells us that in order to be sexual, we must be beautiful. And this makes pretty much all women feel disqualified from the joy of sex, right? Because like there are these impossible beauty standards for women. And if you feel like, oh, I have to look like that porn star in order to be sexual, then that disqualifies almost everybody, especially again, because if it's a doctored image, then like literally no human beings look like that. And men are not held to the same standard. So uh, this is what Wolf says about it. She says, quote, is beauty really sex? Does a woman's sexuality correspond to what she looks like? Does she have the right to sexual pleasure and self-esteem because she's a person? Or must she earn that right through beauty? What is female sexuality? What does it look like? 
Does it bear any relation to the way in which commercial images represent it? Is it something women need to buy like a product? End quote. And man, is that a can of worms, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Answer that in two sentences. But I just love, I mean, I'm just going to leave it with that, with those questions. Um, I just feel like the divorcing women from their sexual natures is tragic and it happens so, so much. It's most, I would say it's one of the most pressing problems for the girls and women I know, actually. Um, and we'll talk about this in our episode on the book Girls and Sex by Peggy Orenstein, but. I was grateful and and glad that that Naomi Wolf brings it up in the book too. Yeah, and you know what gets me hopeful is because a lot of this unconscious messaging came to us through media. I like to think of like you mentioned the Dove campaign and some of these others, the media that's counteracting it. So for example, I think of Lena Dunham and the show she created on HBO called Girls, mm. where she often showed herself topless making out with guys and she does not have what is considered perfect breasts or a perfect body according to the beauty myth. And I really, there was such backlash about her showing her physique on so many different levels. Like she got the whole, like you're too much of a whore, but also like your body isn't perfect. And I really appreciated what she was doing with the medium of saying, hey, I'm sexual. I This is how I look. I'm a normal person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And so it's it's exciting and hopeful to think of examples like that, that can resonate with us and show us, you know, how life really is. Mm. So true. Okay. So a couple other things um, that we haven't mentioned that that we also thought worth noting. One of the other really negative consequences of the beauty myth, according to Wolf, she talks about how the beauty myth has allowed women's pain to morph in the form of cosmetic surgery and eating disorders. So she says, quote, throughout the 1980s, as women gained power, unprecedented numbers of them sought out and submitted to the knife. Why surgery? Why now? For as far back as women could remember, something had hurt about being female. And then she says, but when Supreme Court legalized sale of contraceptives and the pill was widely prescribed and the 1980s made safe abortion legalized, the pleasure sex gave women might finally outweigh the pain. So in the new absence of female pain, the myth put beauty in its place. Freedom from sexual pain left a gap in female identity. So she's kind of arguing that that's when a lot of cosmetic cosmetic surgeries and eating disorders really started to, you know, um, propagate. She also says the beauty myth suggests our culture's obsession with thinness is related to female obedience, conforming to the masculine atmosphere, weakening women's minds as well as their bodies, negating female sexuality and denying women food, which is representative of status and honor. So she says, quote, a cultural fixation on female thinness is not an obsession about female beauty, but an obsession about female obedience, end quote. Another one she had on this is, quote, the, the ideology of semi-starvation undoes feminism. What happens to women's bodies happens to our minds. If women's bodies are and have always been wrong, whereas men's are right, then women are wrong and men are right. Where feminism taught women to put a higher value on ourselves, hunger teaches us how to erode our self-esteem, end quote. Mm. And one more quote on this topic. She says, girls and young women are also starving because the women's movement changed educational institutions and the workplace enough to make them admit women, but yet not enough to change the maleness of power itself. The pressure on them is to conform themselves to the masculine atmosphere. End Mm -hmm. quote. 
Wow. There's a lot in that, a lot to unpack. And I know we're not even kind of going into eating disorders, cosmetic surgery, but I just thought that was such an interesting point around how those are forms of violence against women. Mm. That really, that really hit home for me in a big way. Mm-hmm. So what would you say as we come to the end of the discussion, Vanessa, if it is a takeaway or like one last quote that you want to share from the book? Oh, okay. Whew. There were so many good ones. I, I have to say, I underlined so many sections of this book. And the other thing I just want to name, if anyone is feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so hard to look at. I felt that way reading her book. I was saying to Amy, I'm an avid reader and I read. I could read a book a week. And it took me a long time to get through this book because it was so painful to look mm-hmm. at all of this stuff at face value. And sometimes to feel these forces that are so much greater than us and and to feel like, what are we going to do about all this? <laughs> what are we going to do mm-hmm. about this, ladies? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to end with this quote. It's true what they say about women. Women are insatiable. We are greedy. Our appetites do need to be controlled if things are to stay in place. If the world were ours too, if we believed we could get away with it, we would ask for more love, more sex, more money, more commitment to children, more food, more care. These sexual, emotional, and physical demands would begin to extend to social demands. Payment for care of the elderly, parental leave, childcare. The force of female desire would be so great that society would truly have to reckon with what women want in bed and in the world. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that's something, honestly, I've been playing with lately is what if reclaiming pleasure is one of the ways we reclaim power in our Mm. lives and in the world at large. So this idea of female desire being so great that it could change the world, that gets me really excited and really hopeful. Mm. I love it. So mine is a quote from the very beginning of the book. And she says, quote, more women have more money and power and scope and legal recognition than we have ever had before. But in terms of how we feel about ourselves physically, we may actually be worse off than our unliberated grandmothers. End quote. Um, that really hit home for me. I thought, like, that is definitely true. It has definitely been true in my life, in different phases of my life. It breaks my heart. But to end on a positive note, like you just did too, as I get older, I'm just really glad I am getting better at being kinder to myself and my own, you know, running internal monologue. I'll catch myself being unkind to my body and um, and I'm better about living my life without thinking about how others are perceiving me constantly, though it is a total constant battle. <laughs> but I, I do feel like as you pointed out, there are really encouraging signs that culture's changing um, on an individual level and also like companies and ad campaigns and just that the cultural consciousness is changing. And that also gives me a ton of hope. It was neat. It was it was discouraging in some ways to read something you know from 1991 and think like, oh yeah, in some ways it's even worse than it was then. But there were a lot of ways that I thought, oh, it's getting better. And for sure, seeing my kids, my daughters, um, they are not struggling with some of the things that I struggled with when I was their age. And I'm really, really grateful for to see that happening. Mm. So that brings us to the end. Vanessa, I'm so, so grateful 
Thank you for joining me today. You are just an incredible woman. I'm so grateful that we got to spend this time together. Thanks for being here. Oh, you're so welcome, Amy. Thank you for doing this work in the world. It's it's life-changing and it's it really is. You're helping change the collective consciousness of the planet. <laughs> Literally, I'm serious. So, I I just I feel indebted to you for what you're doing on behalf of women everywhere. And I I really appreciate how you are able to tackle these very heavy subjects with mm, just a lens of honesty and graciousness and kindness and love. And I just, I really admire you in how you're doing this. So thank you so much for inviting me to be part of it. It's an honor. Oh, Vanessa, the honor's mine. Thank you so much. Mwah. Mwah. <laughs> and thank you listeners. Thank you so much for being with us again this week. I'm excited about our next episode as well. Our next episode, we will be discussing Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity by philosopher Judith Butler. I've seen Butler's name everywhere lately as I've been reading texts from the 90s and then beyond. And this book, Gender Trouble, references Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex and French philosophy as it asks new questions about sex and gender. It really is essential reading for women's studies, and it's considered one of the foundational texts for queer theory. So it's a must read for anyone wanting an in-depth understanding of the progression of thought in gender studies. It is a very dense, very academic book. It's not a fast read, but it is definitely worth it, especially if you have an, an interest in these gender studies and queer theory topics, definitely pick it up and give it a read. But for those listeners who just want the TLDR, as always, you can get the bullet points and hear our takeaways during the discussion. So again, it's Judith Butler's Gender Trouble, Feminism and the Subversion of Identity, next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm -hmm.